0: We're speaking with author Martha Brokenbro about her book, Alexander Hamilton, Revolutionary. I think the line that I think cracked me up the most out of your book was in describing that difference between Jefferson and, and, and Hamilton is you said that Jefferson thought you could run things by committee, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is very good. It is sort of sad in retrospect to look at that, at that, that difference between these men and, and the, how Hamilton appears to have carried the day in the northern states, but as you mentioned before, the southern states seemed to remain more uh, bogged down in, in the economies based on slave labor. And in some respects, this was, a, this was a setup for the future civil war, this division of the country, along these two men's uh, visions.
1: I think it absolutely was. And you know, there, there were people who were ambivalent about slavery, people who opposed slavery, and people who thought slavery was a great blessing. You have to kind of look at history with this nuance, um, but definitely people who think it's a blessing and people who think it's an evil, those people are not going to be able to find common ground.
0: Well, Jefferson uh, and Madison and Hamilton do work out a deal in spite of their differences, and it's sort of intriguing to note that the U.S. capital would not be in the north, not in New York, not in Philadelphia, but where it is today in Washington. In exchange for that, uh, they let uh, Hamilton set up the Bank of the United States.
1: Well, and it was you know really about getting the nation in financial order, assuming the debt of the states. Some states had paid off their debt from the Revolutionary War, and some states hadn't. And so the states that had had paid it, you know, felt like, well, we've done our part. Um, <laughs> you know, don't don't make us pay for others. And you know when you think about what it means to be United States, we would assume that all of the states, and the citizens would pay for the nation's wars. We kind of assume that. Now, that was not something that was assumed then. There, were no, there was nothing assumed. They were making it all up as, they, as best they could when they went along, and they had, did have these big philosophical differences. You know, were, were they a nation, or were people residents of their states, and would these states come together when necessary?
0: What intriguing what if uh, out of your book is the fact that when they set up the Constitution, they did allow a provision for someone born outside the United States, Hamilton and others, to become president. And he certainly was a man of burning ambition, but his political ambitions, well, perhaps to be president if he had them, were surely derailed by the fact that he did have an affair while he was secretary of the Treasury. And Washington stood by him, and it all came out okay in the end, but uh, the possible taint of that surely eliminated the possibility he'd ever really run for president.
1: Well, it's interesting because lots of people knew about Thomas Jefferson's affair with Sally Hemings. This one didn't come out in quite such a spectacular way. And, you know, initially people had suspected Alexander Hamilton, his his many enemies, because, boy, could he make enemies. (laughs) Um, They suspected him from benefiting from what they viewed as his financial schemes. I mean, people... Some people hated banks. They really hated them. And some people, you know, thought the speculation that was going on um, in the securities that were used to finance the nation's war, that, you know, they thought that Hamilton had certainly profited from them. And this just wasn't true. He was investigated by Congress twice and cleared. And, uh, but, you know, people said it nonetheless. And this was so upsetting to him because he really, yes, he. Did have an affair, but when it came to political principles and his service to the nation, I just couldn't find an example where um, he did anything that was corrupt. He certainly tried to ply his influence, um, and you know this was another thing that got him into trouble, um, like with the likes of John. Adams and also what really made Aaron Burr angry. I think what you're asking is, could he have been president? Would he have been president? Would he wanted that? You know, knowing Alexander Hamilton, sure, he would have thought about being president. It's either that or in charge of uh, the United States Army, which, you know, he certainly made attempts to do. Would he have been a good one? (laughs) I'm not sure he had the judgment.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit, of, uh, just as an aside, I want to talk a little about Presidents. Your, your book, and I want to note for uh, for our listeners, has some wonderful adden- addenda to it. Uh, you, you have sections on a link between sugar and slavery, brief history of the sugar trade, sections on his family tree, his enemies, his friends. And when it comes to enemies, uh, you talk about his, you know, perhaps inability to, to be a politician, to... Although Washington makes him his right-hand man, the men have a warm relationship for a couple of decades, Hamilton manages to, to irritate the second president, John Adams. Jefferson, <laughs> is his, as the third president, is his uh, rival for years. He has a falling out with James Madison. And the fifth president, James Monroe, almost, they almost get involved in a duel. So he did know how to make enemies.
1: He, he really did. And it's easy to see why. You know, Hamilton w- w- was... He would argue anything, um, and he was good at it, and he was a fast writer. Um, and I think he was always certain that he was right. And very often he was, but he wasn't diplomatic at all, just at all. And, and you know, I think that diplomacy is probably a quality you do want in a president.
0: Yes, indeed. I, I just, again, uh, part of it's, what's in the history books is, is the imaginations the, the of, of Hamilton uh, when Adams is president. He and Adams don't get along so well, although I guess the, his cabinet continued to rely upon upon Hamilton. He gets involved in trying to ensure that Adams does not get reelected in 1800, and he, he probably is successful. But that puts Jefferson in the White House. But thanks to a, a technicality in, in that the Constitution had not foreseen, someone forgot to not vote for Aaron Burr. And even though Burr was supposed to be the vice president he and Jefferson wind up tied, and Burr starts to, you know, pull the levers to see if he can't make himself the top of the ticket, at which point Hamilton again steps in and, and says that, well, as the guy says, legendary, again, high school uh, <laughs> history, that that Hamilton prefers Jefferson even though he's his rival because at least he's an honest man.
1: Um, I, I think that's true, and what he meant, you know, was that He knew what Jefferson stood for. He knew what he could count on with Jefferson, and he did not know with Aaron Burr. And there was that question of his finances and whether he would be, um, he could be corrupted by a foreign country. Um, And, you know, this is why Alexander Hamilton went out of his way to endorse his bitter political enemy.
0: Well, having now made an enemy of Aaron Burr, a guy that he actually worked as a lawyer with earlier at one point in New York, speaking ill of him, it does lead to what is surely the most famous dual American history, wherein Vice President Burr shoots and kills Alexander Hamilton at that point is only 49 years of age. Um, this is something that I think people have just looked at and, and pondered uh, since the 1800s, Hamilton lost his son, his beloved son, in a duel uh, not long before. And and people just ask, well, you would you think that he would have understood the futility of dueling? And I guess the question, you know, as we bring this to a close is, was it pride? Well, what is it that led to Hamilton falling for something so crazy as dueling?
1: Different people have different interpretations of it some people say, oh, he was looking to resuscitate his political career, and if he could um, prove that he was an honorable man, that he would get it back on track. You know, some people say, sure, it's a matter of pride. You know, he he had to be viewed as being honorable, and if someone had brought an insult to an affair of honor, as these things were called, he had to follow through, or he would be a dishonorable man. And I think all of these observations are true. Why was honor so important to him? And once again, I go back to... His childhood, where his birth was the subject of criticism, where his father left his family, where he was adrift. He didn't have a family. He did not have love. And you know, one of the letters that he wrote when he was a young man, and this was to a girl who had broken up with him, is he and he was telling her he was he was all right despite the breakup because all for love was his motto. And so this is my theory. And this is essentially what he wrote to his wife in the last letter to her, is that if he did not go through with this duel, he would not be worthy of her love. And so, yes, he had cheated on her. Yes, he had harmed her. But he also truly loved her. He truly loved his family. He wanted to be worthy of love. And I think he was hoping... That he wouldn't be killed in this but he accepted the possibility um, and he did have christian beliefs and believed that he and his wife would be united in the ever after and uh, but anyway it was all for love that was what drove him is he wanted to be lovable and i think that's what made him susceptible to affairs when a woman you know made him feel lovable that that's why he succumbed to that temptation
0: well it's a tragic ending to an illustrious life, but no one can deny Alexander Hamilton his, his accomplishments. Uh, again and again, he was in a position to, to enact some changes, which, which he made, and, and those affect us even today. I'm wondering, Martha, if you have um, one particular contribution or something about his life that you think is most, most singular. I'm
1: going to say that it... Is the financial system? He said. I mean, I'm really torn between getting the Constitution ratified and all the hard work he did there. He was the only person who could have set up the financial system that we have today, with the, with the complicated and interwoven um, means of financing the nation's debt, with the banking system, um, with the U.S. Mint. The work there he did was extraordinary, and it's what. Uh, um, what made the United States in relatively short order become one of the leading nations in the world.
0: We have been speaking with author Martha Brokenbrough about her fascinating book, Alexander Hamilton, Revolutionary. We recommend it to you very highly, dear listener. Um, just one final note as, as we close, Martha, there was an effort to take Hamilton off the $10 bill. It looks like that's been thoroughly derailed, and I, I assume you, you approve of
1: that. <laughs> ten out of ten, I approve. <laughs>
0: Very good. Well, thank
1: you for speaking with us. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, that was a lot of fun. We have not uh, had the chance to sit down with an author for quite a while. It is good that we have resumed that tradition here at Radio Parallax. I'm a bit sad to note that now that we have bid adieu to our author, I, I now have just thought of something I wanted to suggest to her, which was that the public could use another biography of the Marquis de Lafayette. I think that uh, Martha Brockenbrough might be just the person to to take on this task. In doing some background research, to our discussion on Hamilton, I I read a little bit about Lafayette and was rather knocked out to note that, well, he well, first of all, he was a close friend to George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and Thomas Jefferson. That's not a surprise, but it turns out he was a key figure in both the American Revolution, the French Revolution of 1789 and what's described as the July Revolution of 1830. What an interesting guy. I'd like to read a biography about him. I'd also like to read the Federalist Papers, and to my great disgust, (laughs) I note that in searching my personal library for my copy, I've come to suspect that it was one of those books that 6 to 12 months ago, I decided needed to be culled from my collection. I remember thinking at the time that if I hadn't gotten around to reading the Federalist Papers by now, I probably was never going to do so, but I was wrong. And now, of course, I have to go out and buy another copy. Isn't that just the way of the world? I do want to add that I have no intention of seeing the Broadway musical, quote-unquote musical, titled Hamilton. I think I need to give it a thumbs up for having generated a lot of interest in this most, most important and interesting figure in American history, but, you know... A rap musical, sorry, sorry, just not going there. And this, Mr. McMillan was very disappointed because he is a huge, huge advocate for Broadway musicals. All right, our, our interview happily ran a bit long. And in the 19 or 20 minutes left to us. All right, we've got about 20 minutes left in today's program. Let's, uh, let's talk about the usual things we enjoy discussing. I do want to note that I have done no follow-up on the announcement made on last week's program that we we would do our level best to bring Julie Credence on the program to talk about her visit to the central line of the eclipse in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, but we're going to see what we can do about that. Hopkinsville is uh, of note because it was celebrating the anniversary of an event that supposedly took place on August 21st in 1955, wherein a bunch of gun-toting Kentuckians came down to their local police station to note that, well, um, I guess they weren't exactly described as little green men, but little men supposedly from a, a flying saucer of extraterrestrial origin were apparently peeking in their windows, causing them to break out firearms and commence shooting. Our understanding is that subsequent investigations by the local police and authorities were unable to find any evidence whatsoever of extraterrestrial visitation. They did, however, find numerous bullet holes in the doors and screens. And you know, dear listener, this is just the kind of story we think warrants further investigation, so we'll see if we can't get Julie on board to talk about that. Well, not so much that, but talk about her experience with the eclipse, and if she wants to talk about that, well, we're game. Also, by way of follow-up that is eclipse-related, we would like to note that there is now a third edition of the book titled Totality, Eclipses of the Sun. Well, correction, that's the title of the second edition. There is now a third edition, which has been slightly retitled as Totality, The Great American Eclipses of 2017 and 2024. If you're going to buy one book about total eclipses and you plan to research the 2024 eclipse, and we recommend, your listener, you do both, well, this would be something to consider getting a hold of. New Scientist magazine said, It's a great reference book. Basically, if you can't answer your questions about eclipses here, then you may not be able to answer them at all. New Scientist did make one comment about this book, which echoes comments we made previously, was that while you get great advice in it about how to photograph an eclipse... You may want to just leave that up to the professionals. The reviewer and consultant for New Scientist, Stuart Clark, said that some years ago, while I was doing research for his book, The Sun Kings, he was struck by a passage from astronomer Warren de la Rue. He was writing about his expedition to the 1860 eclipse in Spain. His scientific objective was to capture the first photograph of the totality of the totally eclipsed sun, and he succeeded. The results can be seen in the Royal Astronomic Society. And the camera he used is in the Science Museum, which are both in London. But, notes Mr. Clark, the achievement came at a cost. De La Rue wrote that if he were ever lucky enough to witness another total eclipse, he would forego science simply to witness the spectacle. Clark said, I think this is the best advice for those seeing their first eclipse at any rate. Leave the camera and the checklists at home there are only two things you need to do. First, get yourself to the actual path of totality, noting that even a 99% partial eclipse is nothing compared with the total. And second, buy good eclipse glasses. And then on the day, empty your mind and let the power of nature amaze you. Darn good advice, we'd say. And speaking of things astronomic, the Cassini spacecraft committed suicide by plunging into Saturn last Friday. One of the reasons offered for its um, suicide was that it was just about out of fuel, and they were afraid it might crash into one of the moons of Saturn because they couldn't direct it so well, and this might contaminate the planet. Others have pointed out this is really silly reasoning since the cassini mission previously sent a probe that deliberately crashed into the moon titan and uh, did some darn good science uh in the process well whether it was a smart thing to do or a dumb thing it's done and although we were promised some last minute pictures i have yet to see anything that looks as though it was you know <laughs> like those spacecraft we sent to the moon back in the 60s which you know had what were called hard landings at the time. The last images taken by those spacecraft just before they impacted were uh, pretty dramatic. But um, maybe NASA's still working on it. I I don't know. We've been big advocates for space exploration on this program over the years. Uh, One reason, we think, is that when you go look at other planets in our local solar system. You learn a lot about them that is applicable back here on Earth. One area that may carry over is study of atmospheres. Now, it turns out most of the moons in our solar system don't have any, but Titan certainly does. So along with Venus, Mars, and Titan, study of other atmospheres may give us some insights into our own. And we could use some insights because things seem to be going haywire in Earth's atmosphere late with um, all of these hurricanes, as we talked about in our interview with Martha Brokenbro. Hamilton got a great start in life with his description of the hurricane that blasted onto the island of Nevis. We are uh, a little nervous about the fact that another hurricane is impacting it as we speak, along with its neighboring island of St. Kitts. One of our fellow eclipse chasers is currently stationed on the island of St. Kitts, and I do hope we'll get a report back on what it's like to withstand one of these storms. All right, you know what? I think I'm going to skip all of our quotes and quips and things we so often like to begin the program with and just cut right to the good, the bad, and the ugly. We would like to note that according to The Week magazine, it was a good week, a few weeks back, for believing folklore in the wake of an Irish lawmaker blaming persistent damage to a stretch of a local highway on angry ferries. Member of Parliament Danny Healy Ray, who was not joking, said, There are numerous ferry forts in that area. Anyone that tampered with them over the years paid a high price and had bad luck. And it was a bad week a few weeks back for ignoring science. And we did cover this on the program when it happened, but we're returning to it because while it is apparently evident that President Trump had defied clear warnings from experts and looked up at the sun without protective eye gear during the August eclipse, We were unaware of the fact that an aide had shouted, don't look, just before he did so, but has been widely reported both before, during, and after the president tends not to follow direct advice. And finally, it was an ugly week this past week for efforts to balance the federal budget with the following story, which I think we will go on about a bit at length, but here's the deal. The Secret Service has exceeded its mandatory salary caps on agents who are protecting President Trump and his rather large family at their multiple residences. USA Today reported a week ago that Secret Service Director Randolph Tex Ailes said that more than 1,000 agents have already hit the caps for salary and overtime allowances that were meant to last the entire year as they ferry Trump on almost weekly trips to Mar-a-Lago and his properties in Virginia and New Jersey, and escort his family members on business trips and vacations abroad. Else said he needs Congress to lift the salary and overtime caps. I have no flexibility, he said. Some 42 people are under protection in the Trump administration. 18 of them are the president's family members. We find this story especially intriguing in the wake of talking about America's first Treasury Secretary and the fact that um, someone I've known since childhood was a member of the Secret Service, evidently now retired. He's apparently going to be coming local in the not-too-distant future, and I look forward to sitting down with him and talking about presidential security matters. And yes, I'd love to hear what he has to say about protecting... Team Trump. And if we're going to talk about the wild and woolly world of politics, which to no small degree we've been, we've been doing today, uh, we should probably take a look at another country, in this case, India, because in doing so, we probably will feel a little bit better about our own sometimes dysfunctional governance. But this story does reveal a bit about the real world of politics. I don't know if you noticed, dear listener, but apparently um, a week or two ago, an Indian guru was convicted of rape. In this case, it was Gurmit Ram Rahim Singh. He is the spiritual leader of the Dara Sacha Sauda, a sect with actually tens of millions of adherents in India. He was found guilty last week of raping two female followers in 2002 at his compound and got sentenced to 20 years in prison. The bearded 50-year-old guru wailed that he was innocent as the sentence was read out. Lawyers for the victims believe he is guilty of raping many more women. In the wake of the verdict, tens of thousands of his devotees rioted in the northern states, burning cars and buildings. At least 36 people died in the mayhem. The Indian newspaper The Hindu asked in an editorial, why weren't police ready? Well, it turns out that's because local governments handle sex like the Dara with kid gloves since they can deliver votes in blocks. And writing in the Indian Express, by the way, all this comes to us courtesy of our copy of the week, it was noted that Singh is not just a holy man, he's an entertainer. He's released six albums of high-energy pop, the most recent of which, Highway Love Chargers, sold three million copies in three days. He also makes movies. In Singh's movies, which he's credited as writer, director, actor, and musician, he's portrayed as part motorcycle-riding action hero, and part divinity. He calls himself messenger of God and is politically powerful in, in Haryana State, where his support was actually critical to the victory there in the ruling Hindu nationalist BJP party. It should be noted that at least four other Indian gurus have been convicted of rape in recent years. These godmen, quote-unquote as they call themselves, exist at the intersection of religious fervor, political power, public support, and often massive wealth, as reported in FirstPost.com. It was noted that they groom their followers as child sex predators do until their victims believe they are being gloriously singled out for preferential treatment from the leader. Wow, pretty bad. I have to say that I perhaps shouldn't have chuckled during our discussion about Alexander Hamilton at the notion of um, this fellow Aaron Burr being a New Yorker with a questionable financial background who (laughs) might be susceptible to foreign influence. Um, Well, uh, in Radio Parallax's view, that that does seem to have a rather contemporary ring to it, but does suggest the possibility that we might want to discuss Aaron Burr a little bit further in future programs, and perhaps also the eighth president of the United States, Martin Van Buren, also a New Yorker, also a man noted for his remarkable scheming, and who for better and worse, and in many cases it's for worse, is the father of how things are really done in American politics. It is Martin Van Buren who is credited with being the originator of the political convention wherein political parties pick who it is the public gets to choose to hold office we do obituaries from time to time on this program and we're going to do a one that, and we're going to do one today briefly noting the passing of the South African wildlife conservationist Wayne Lauder. Lauder, for many years spearheaded campaigns in Tanzania against elephant poachers and ivory smugglers. He was shot and killed in Tanzania a couple weeks back in what was surely a targeted attack. It's very depressing to note that poaching has caused Tanzania's elephant population to drop from 109,000 as recently as 2009 to just 43,000 in 2014. Wayne Lauder surely knew that it could happen. He got death threats all the time. But he did what he thought he was supposed to do, and in that, we all owe him. We certainly hope that his death will galvanize the authorities and private conservation groups to step up their game and do what they can to protect what is left of those wonderful herds in Tanzania. This correspondent happened to see one while visiting the country many years ago. And like a total eclipse of the sun, watching a herd of elephants tromp across the countryside is, uh, well, it should be, I think, on everybody's bucket list. And if we don't take some steps right now to preserve the elephants, uh, it is something that will disappear. All right, our thanks once again to Martha Brokenbro. Her book, Alexander Hamilton, Revolutionary, is a fine read. You, my dear listener, should consider reading it. I don't think we did it justice today as we seldom do in our talks with authors. There's a lot more in a book than a radio interview. Generally, orders of magnitude more. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your devoted host, Douglas Everett, and we will see you next week at the same time.